Thank all of you for tuning in today to the show. We really appreciate it. <clears throat> we'll be on for the next hour here with We Are Just Christians. It's a live call-in show. And I'll give you some information about that in just a moment. Probably too much information for our regular users, but we go back over anyway. We're glad to have you today. This show is about everything spiritual, which, of course, spiritual covers everything. It's like asking a person like me uh, what's politics. Well, everything is political, and everything is uh, spiritual. In both ways. I mean, you can talk about any subject. can be brought into either realm. I have this little, um, you've probably heard it, Gary, on WPSL, a little blurb I made some years ago. Oh, yeah. show. And basically said, you know, it's, I've been told when I was growing up, it's not polite to talk about religion and politics. Of course, that's pretty much all we talk about on this show, mostly religion, a little bit. We get drug into politics once in a while. And sometimes we dive in ourselves, But they're related. Politics is just another way of looking at the worldview. A person's religious view, views are going to impact their political views and so forth. It's very difficult to separate all that out. And politics and religion impact the life and the way you of live. Everything about it. So, yeah. so uh, the, the question is whether you can be fair or whether you're just a, a complete partisan in some sense of meaning. Meaning by that, someone who is unfair in their thinking. But we're concerned on this show about the basic question, what does the Bible say? What does the New Testament say about things? So when you call into the show, and I'll give you the numbers in just a moment, we're going to have a discussion about that. You can ask or any question you want to ask. You can bring up any topic you want to bring up, whether it's we, you think we'll like it or not, whether you think we agree. You don't, certainly don't have to agree with us. But we're going to try to give you some p- perspective from the New Testament on that question, or from the Bible, and if it, in a broader sense, on that question, some scriptures to look at to be able to try to answer it. That's what this show is about. And the reason we do that is Jesus specifically said it is the word that He spoke, the scripture that we have, basically, that will judge us in the last day. Okay, John twelve forty eight. Right. Well, Jerry is on the line already, Gary. But let me give the numbers first. Jerry okay. knows the number. It's the regular call the number for the PSL. Seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety, seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero is the number. You can also reach us by text at seven seven two two six zero six one two zero, or seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. I'll give you some more of that information in just a moment. Jerry, are you there? What's on your mind? Good morning, Jerry. How are you? Yes, I was wondering, uh, a few weeks ago we talked about, I called in with a question about uh, cardinal sin and venial sin and uh, original sin and mortal sin. But I was wondering about when they use the word omission, uh, uh, is it sin of omission? And just exactly what are they uh, talking about uh, omission, Mike and Gary? And I'd like to listen off air if that'd be okay. That's fine. Very appreciate you calling in, Jerry. Yes, uh, uh, we can talk a little bit about cardinal, uh, about uh, mortal sin and venial sin, but a, a sin of omission is uh, is the opposite uh, of a sin of commission, where commission is something that you do, uh, omission is something that you should do that you leave off or leave out. 
that's the general idea there. And so um, the, the idea is, well, that idea is found in the Bible. I'm not sure that I can address fairly uh, in a sense of knowing exactly what they say about it. I'm not sure I can ad- fairly address uh, the, the, uh, what the Catholic Church says about the sin of omission or commission. But I know how it was used when I was growing up. Um, and let me ha- I'm trying to find a ba- passage here for you, Jerry. Um, the, it's, ja- it's James um, or Galatians 6.10, I believe. Let me just look that up. The passage I'm looking for would be one of the main ones. Most sins are sins of com- commission, meaning something that you do that's not right. Um, what was that reference, Mike? No, nah, I get that's the wrong one. Mm. Are you thinking of 1 John 5.16? Well, read that one. And, um, okay, 1 John 5.16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who co- commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All righteousness, unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. That's the two verses from First John. Hmm. I am just not finding at all the verse. It's the one that says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Um, and for some reason... Uh, I cannot. Uh, I can't even remember where it is. Uh, I'm having trouble here, Jerry. There you go. It's uh, James four seventeen. That's where. I, that's where I was looking, and I just must have looked right at it and missed it. James four seventeen, and uh, it says he's talking about the people who would say, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow." James four thirteen. We will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? You don't, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So you're making all these plans and you're, going to, you're saying exactly what you're going to do. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Now, in that con- that's been that passage has been pulled out to him that knows to do good and does it not as sin to create a category of sin called the sin of omission. I believe I think I'm correct about this in a broad way. So there are things that you should do, Jerry. That you when you don't do them, you're wrong in not doing them. Okay. So um, broad example, you, you have a duty to, to honor your father and mother, and Jesus says basically that's taking care of them when they're old and paying for what they need. And Peter and Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that very thing, care for those who are your responsibility to care for. Now, a person it doesn't have to actively hurt their parents or throw them out or kill them to neglect his duty or not do the right thing toward his parents. The duty is you, have to, you need to take care of them. You can commit a sin of omission just by not caring and providing for your aged parents when they need help. So that's a sin of omission. Um, so he, he even says in James, a man who says, to, a man who sees a person who is needy and, and they say, you know, have a good day, 
be warmed and filled, but doesn't give him the things that he needs, James says that's a sin. You haven't actively hurt the man by, you know, assaulting him or something, but you've committed sin by not doing what you ought to do. And that's, now, in the context of James 4, it's talking about the fact that today is the only day you have. Today. You don't have any promise of what you can boast about tomorrow. So today, if you don't do what's good today, when you know what's right to do, it's a sin. And that's how I would use that verse in a more narrow sense of that science. It's something that uh, you don't do. Now, I'm not, uh, I can't speak exactly without looking it up and spending some time here to do it. I might do that in just a moment if I can work in the mental, the mental capacity to do it this morning. <laughs> you can see I'm struck. I can't remember these simple verses like this. I've known all my life. But I can look up what the Catholic Church specifically teaches. But I'm going to say in general, that's how I've heard it used over the years. What about you, Gary? The sin of well, omission I'm, and commission. Yeah, well, basically that's how I had viewed it in, in my own life and in, in looking at those things. Those are the things that I miss the most. It's, it's things that I missed that I should have done that I think give me most cause for pause. Opportunities opportunities lost, that are that opportunities done lost done well. Right. S- said the right thing, done the right thing. thing. And I can't go back and retrieve the time. You cannot go back and retrieve those opportunities. All right, now I'll give you a, a conundrum in that very thing is what I was thinking of. For one, I would say in a general sense, I think sometimes listening to hellfire and brimstone preaching growing up, as you may have yourself, Gary. I, I heard this sin of omission, I think, misused to create a guilty conscience in people when there was no guilt. And yet, the danger of say, me saying what I just said is that it's certainly a real thing that we can be guilty of not doing what we ought to do. But I spent a lot of my time as a young man feeling guilty because I wasn't out <clears throat> teaching every moment and doing all these things. I, I had a, you know, I had five kids. They were all close in age. And so here I have a lot of responsibilities at home. And uh, my wife took the brunt of of, of, me, of that, of me not, be, me not really uh, helping her as much as I should have and things like that because I was busy, you know, saving the world being a preacher. Well, that, but, uh, but uh, let, me, let me say right, a little right. word about that. I think most women... Uh, catch the brunt of that because men, whether they're preachers or not, have responsibilities of family and jobs, and it takes them away from the home at that point. And so uh, it's it's, yeah, it's, it's some, the understanding some, of the two roles that we have to understand. Yeah, it is. A lot of that's, that's, that's really, now we're going to get off track here, but that's really one of the negative things about being a father and a husband is that your duty is to provide, and it takes you away from the home. And that's a very negative thing. But, st- but some people use that negative thing as a positive in that they actually shirk their duty and they enjoy their job more than dealing with their wife. And so they spend time at work calling it necessary because dealing with wives and children can be very emotionally taxing for men. So it becomes a plus and a minus. And I realize now that I probably uh, neglected my duty toward my wife at times. Uh, doing doing this grand work of preaching the gospel and saving the world when I could have been doing things for her. On the other hand, she knew this when she married me that this was my uh, passion in life. From the time we first met, it was my passion. It wasn't something 
it got sprung on her. So, but in any event, I remember sitting there at times. So Monday night football would come on, and my boys, you know, three boys, they want to watch football. So we sit down there and we're watching football on a Monday night, and we're enjoying it, having popcorn and you know, eating cheap pizza, frozen pizza, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I would sit there, Gary, and feel very, very guilty because I wasn't out visiting some poor person that needed to uh, be encouraged or hear the gospel, or I wasn't, you know, um, doing studying and looking through all my massive books to, to learn something new about spirit. And I felt guilty for that. A- and I came to realize after some years that I, I wasn't neglecting my duty. I was actually doing my duty just in a different way. Now, so enjoying life or doing good things with your children or your family or friends is not a sin of omission. But now, if that's all that you do, if your life is imbalanced, completely imbalanced to where it's all about me having fun and having a party all the time, then yes, you're committing the sin of omission. You're not doing your duty toward those who need you. And most importantly, we have a duty to love our neighbor. Well, who's our neighbor? Our neighbor is the people that we're near. That's who our neighbor is, and that's your wife and children starting with, or your family, your parents, whoever it may be. Well, it's the people you're near to who have, who have need of who your help. And, and, and it, it's you know, not everybody that's near you has need of help. So. No, they don't, but some, but some need your presence, and they yeah. need your uh, – I think that if I could give advice to young fathers and husbands, it would be what your wife needs from you is your presence and your, and your interest or participation in things in the family. She needs that from you. You know, we could go spend a whole show on that. But, but I'm only saying that sometimes we can overuse the sin of omission, and there are a certain kind of person out there that I've met and I've been one who never, ever, ever feels like they've done enough for the Lord, that they've done enough good things, that they've done this or that. They, 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 they spend all their time trying to help their family and friends. And in the end, they go to bed at night, and they still feel inadequate, and they haven't done enough. What, what are you supposed to do? Well, you, you can ruin your entire life, your comfort. You can ruin your state of mind uh, in a negative way by not realizing that you're not committing a sin of omission. Well, you've Mike, done the best you all, can do. All I can tell you is one of the one of the ways that I began to look at this idea of missed opportunities that I talked about earlier. I began to look at that as not that I can recover that opportunity, but that I can learn to recognize opportunities in the future not to miss them. And I think that's really what God expects of us. Uh, at the time, I didn't realize that the, here was an opportunity. What, what, does, what, does he, what does the passage say? He who knows what is good and does not do it, to him it is sin. At the time, there was some little bit of ignorance there. Not recognition is not total ignorance, but just failure to recognize. And so one of the things that I began to do when I realized those things was try to make note of what the circumstances were so that maybe I can recognize these things better in the future. Uh, I did not try to let that become a guilt trip, in other words, of times that I could not recover. Now, that was my method of dealing with it. Uh, I, I don't know how others deal with it, but that was what I tried to do with it. I wonder how this relates to this commandment in Leviticus 4, verse 2, 
which is variously interpreted. Speak to, the, to Moses, be, uh, Lord speaking to Moses, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them and so forth, he has to bring an offering to the priest. Now this is often translated a sin of ignorance. Yes. You made me think about this when you said what you did about ignorance. Now, well, this I'm is not doing sure. something that you ought not to do ignorantly. Now, is that the same thing as a sin of omission? Well, I think it would be more ignore, ignore, not ignorance, but ignoring, ignoring what you ought to do. Perhaps when you either, I think it's a sin whether you know it or not. When you don't do your duty or your, or your responsibility, whether you know it or not, it's wrong. Now, there may be a different level of culpability and a different reaction to a person who doesn't really understand what their duty is and isn't fulfilling it. As opposed to, let's say, an employee who doesn't really know what their job is, they don't do it. You're going to treat that person differently than one who you've instructed carefully about his job, and you know that they know it, but won't do it. Yes. Now, now they're going to treat those two people differently, and I, I, I imagine the Lord's the same way. Well, this is a problem, Mike. I'm, I'm, we're getting a little, I'm going to take us a little further off subject here for a moment, but this is a problem we have with all Scripture in a way that sometimes there's a great, you know, there's a degree of ignorance, okay, in, in a situation where I fail to recognize what I should do doesn't mean that I was totally ignorant of what I should do, but I fail to recognize it. Is that, is that, that's not a pure sin of ignorance, but there are degrees, and there are degrees of all of the things that we look at here, except there are some commands, there are no degrees. We can understand that. We need to follow those commands. Do not commit adultery. There, there's, there's no way to confuse that. But basically when Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman and, and with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her all, already in the heart, at what point does that occur? Because I, I'll tell you right now, I think God put within men a, a desire, a sexual desire that occurs whether you are looking at a woman to lust or have strong desire or not. Sometimes it just occurs because of the way he made us. Is that is that a strong desire or not? And, and we don't and we, and we don't always have that well defined for us. Desire, strong desire, are different, and also and it, me acting upon that desire is d- are d- different. Curbing that desire is different. Uh, So that's what I'm pointing out. Scripture does not always give us what I call the crank and grind solution. Everybody or most of the people that I've talked about when they have questions about what's in the scripture, that's like, okay, I want to put the question in, turn the crank, and a specific answer comes out for me, and that does not happen all the time. Well, on sins of omission, the general concept then, I'm going to put two guardrails up for people since we're talking about an area here that we can't, specifically define every time on the one side the guardrail is you need to be paying attention to the word of god as carefully as you can so that you know what the lord expects of you and obey with everything that you have to keep all the commandments of the lord james says he that he that uh, fails in one commandment is guilty of the whole law you need to know what god says you need to be concerned about that you need to be obedient children we're to, we're to operate peter says as obedient children. Now then, the other guardrail is that 
you can all you can you can as we would say in modern terms you can beat yourself up so badly about the things like you're talking about do i love the lord enough and do i care enough and do i love my neck and you can you can get into that and you can beat yourself up so badly that you really can lose all the joy there is in serving god and i believe this is where religion has come for a lot of people that's why a lot of people have turned away from religion to some degrees because psychologically it looks like it's just a a trap to beat themselves up over everything instead of realizing that they're a human being that's trying to do the best they can and 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 um, improve each day so i just had to give up the idea of give up the idea of some kind of perfection without giving up the idea that i need to keep all the commandments of god as best i can and realize that uh God can bear, go with me in my weakness. Now, that's well, not the same as just ignoring what God says. It's, it's, not it's, paying attention. It's difficult. If it's difficult to, to do this in that giving up, I think you should give up the idea of perfection, but not give up the idea of striving for perfection. That's what I'm saying. And you have to realize yeah. that somewhere that you're going to fail. And God has provided a way around that. John says in 1 John 2, 1, and the following verses, if brethren, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he says, I'm writing so that you won't sin. Stop believing this doctrine that's going around today and has been for a while that sin isn't important and that once we become a Christian, we can't sin. The book of First John was written to Christians. And he says, I'm writing that you may not sin. And the Greek tenses and the English tenses tell you that it's a real possibility that you will sin. So he doesn't want you to sin. But if you if you do sin, you have to realize as a Christian I have an advocate, somebody who's on my side, who will stand with me before the Father and plead my case. So we have to realize that in our failures, or even when we omit what we should do, that we have someone who's on our side with us in this struggle against evil. And so there's the two extremes. Some people think they can't sin and don't sin, and the others think that everything they do is wrong and nothing they do is acceptable to God. In Christ, if you're a Christian, and many of you who listen to this material are not true New Testament Christians. That's another subject. But in Christ, you have an advocate. You have someone who's with you uh, who is striving with you in this battle. And so you can make it. But, but if you don't pay attention and don't care and dismiss it like so many Protestants do, after all, I can't sin because I'm a Christian now. God saved me, so I can't really sin. You're going to be in serious trouble in the judgment because you will not do what God wants you to do. You will omit things. And, and the difficult part is we don't know all of the details of that. And I think, you know, we don't know all the details of of how that advocacy is going to play out in the judgment. We don't know all of the details of just exactly what's what's intended for us uh, or, or how the judgment is going to be handled. And, Mike, I believe God did that on purpose. Yes, he wants to see what we're going to do, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and it's not the only place that he said... Uh, uh, Basically, that he he wants to know what we're going to do. Uh, I'd I'd like to. This goes against Calvinism, and maybe we're getting off the subject a little bit. But I, I want to read uh, 
from Deuteronomy 8, uh, beginning in about verse 1. He says, Every commandment which I commanded you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to, now this is the important part, to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What he's telling the children of Israel is you endured all of those things in the wilderness, and you hungered, and, and I didn't give you everything that you might physically need just to make it easy for you because I wanted to test you. I wanted to see what was in your heart. I wanted to understand if you would obey my commands. I, Mike, I'm, I'm thinking God's still doing that to, with us today. Yeah, even, even the, uh, all the commands or the situation with the manna was a yes. test of faith. was a they test to of trust faith. that God would actually do what he said he was going to do. And so they could do sins of commission and omission with regard to, to everything that God has says. We can either we can not do it or do the opposite. Well, it comes. Or we can ignore it and omit what God has said to do from our life. And and they were cautioned every time to know the word of God. Right. Uh, know the word of God. And know, know the means word of God. more than intellectual knowing in the Bible. It generally means more taking it to heart kind of knowing. Is the idea, and uh, just like hearing means more than just listening with the ear, generally it implies obedience all throughout the Old Testament and the New, and so and so it is with sins of omission and commission. But I, I think it's been an issue that has uh, plagued people's consciences. And Gary, you know, there's something to be said for having a sensitive conscience. Having a sensitive conscience is much better than having a conscience that's seared with a hot iron, as Paul told Timothy, where we don't really respond to being guilty. That's a serious problem. But having an ultra-sensitive conscience can be difficult on you because you then think you're guilty of things that you're not guilty for. That's the problem. Well, and, and I'll be honest with you, Mike. You talk about people who beat themselves up over feeling guilty. I... I'll confess to you, I swing back and forth. There are times when I feel like I've, I'm a miserable failure at serving God, and there are times when I probably go too far the other way. I think, yeah, I'm pretty good, right? I've yeah. done, done everything, what's, yeah, what's uh, left, right? And, and, it, and it swings back and forth. It's, it's, it, uh, at least for me, it's not always constant. Right. And I suspect it's that way with everyone. Right. So... Uh, you know, God gave us a conscience, and that modern uh, modern psychology from uh, from the time of Freud on, maybe before that, has tried because of the sec because of the, its secular nature to get God out of men's hearts and consciences. But the conscience is built into people; it's built into them, and so there is there is guilt. Now, then, guilt can be a very good thing. I mean. David was guilty, although he wouldn't admit it, of committing sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And it didn't come to, his conscience was 
muted until Nathan the prophet confronted him and said, Thou art the man. And then David broke down and admitted his guilt before the Lord and suffered the rest of his life from the pain of that sin, the realization of that pain. So, but it was, if he had no conscience, he would have been more like uh, Athaliah or Jezebel acting without any conscience or caring what's right or wrong at all. So there's, it's one thing for a person to have a conscience that's active and they pay attention to it. And it's one, another thing for a person to have no real conscience at all and not, not respond to it. We need to make care, sure we don't dull our conscience by continually doing what's wrong. This was Paul's admonition about the eating of meats and so forth. John's been texting me about that here, about the idol and so forth. He warns them, if you think it's wrong to eat, the, eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though it isn't wrong in actuality, if you think it's wrong, don't eat it because you will damage your conscience, you see, if you do. Well, so and you it, be careful about that. So I warn young people about different issues. If you think something is wrong, don't do it. You may be incorrect. It may be fine. But that means until you can be assured of it, let each man, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, oh no, that's Romans 14, let each man be fully assured in his own mind. So be, be sure before you act on anything. If you think it's wrong, don't do it and violate your conscience because that's more damaging to you than the other way around. It's now then people can use guilt to control other people, Gary. Right, but and, and also I'd like to point out something about that, Mike, that we don't think about is uh, Mike said, uh, I mean, Paul said in certain circumstances it's not wrong to eat those meats if you don't believe it's wrong. But then he gave another circumstance where he said it is wrong. So a, there's a circumstance in which you would be wrong to go ahead and eat the meat. Well, that would be if you if you were going to damage your brother there. Exactly. As right. if, 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 if he gets up and says, this has been sacrificed to idols, we're doing this as a worship service, then what do you do then? In that circumstance, you should not eat the meat. And he's very clear about that. Uh, there, there's also this, you brought up David. I asked the question, did God forgive David for the sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah the Hittite? God said he did forgive David. But guess what? He reminded David about it the rest of his life. It does mean there were no consequences because right. he forgave him. This is one of the big misunderstandings about forgiveness. So now we think if we if a person is forgiven that they bear no consequences or shouldn't bear any consequences. There's plenty of for, plenty of consequences to be borne, even though you are forgiven for something. We shouldn't be so immature as to think that. But uh, we do need to understand, and I would caution people, about violating their conscience, you see. We should not do that, and the Lord is he's careful to say, don't do that, don't violate your conscience and, and, in, in Romans 14. And I suspect that those consequences that were given to David reminded him of that sin for the rest of his life. Right. So basically those, that, those sins have consequences, and often those consequences are going to remind you of that sin for a very, very long time. Right. Um, let, let me see if I can get a better, ex a better uh, exact quotation from the from the Bible about this issue. It says um, in, in Romans and First Corinthians eight. Now concerning things, uh, verse one, First Corinthians eight one. Now concerning things offered to idols, 
here's the story behind this. Take a few minutes. I know, we, I know we're spending a long time on this question, but the story was that before Christ came, the, the Gentiles were sacrificing all kinds of animals to their different gods. And depending on the temple and the god who was being worshipped in various cities, they would have meat in the marketplaces to Apollo or to Zeus or to this god or that god. And the people would, would buy this meat with the idea that when they bought it from that market, that they were worshipping that god. It was an act of religion to them and honoring a god. And so it, when they became Christians then, it became a problem. They, they had once been used to eating the meat that was worshiping God. Now they became a Christian. They didn't want to worship that God. And so many of them became vegetarians because they couldn't eat meat in their own conscience, wouldn't let them eat the meat because they felt like they were still worshiping this false God. Paul comes along who is teaching. And he's saying to these people, now in truth, meat is nothing. It doesn't matter. We have a caller, but hang on a second there, caller, and I'll get to you. But it doesn't matter. You can eat the meat or not eat the meat. God made the meat. It's all free. You don't have to worry about it. But he tells the other tells them, if it violates your conscience, even though it's okay really with God, if you feel bad about doing it, don't do it. And he warns people who do eat the meat not to hold their brother in contempt for not eating. Don't hold him in contempt. Right. Don't tempt him to eat it when he doesn't want to, you see. We'll come back and try to read this in just a moment. Right now we have a caller. Are you there, Ken? Yeah, Mike. How you doing? Speak up real loud for me. Yeah, I'm fine. How you doing, Mike? We're doing good. How about how about you? Okay, uh, I text you. All right. Somehow. Okay, we're losing you. You texted me what? Seven. Eleven. Uh, you're getting feedback, Ken. Mark seven eleven. We'll start there. And what's the other verse? You already touched on Matthew twenty three twenty three. Matthew 23. All right, let's take, yes, yeah, so he, he gives, he's in Mark 7, the context is he's teaching, telling them that their traditions, which are they made up, they weren't in the Bible, were actually the commandments and doctrines of men, and it was vain worship, that their traditions had caused them to lay aside God's commandment to keep their tradition, and he talked about washing of hands, pitchers, and cups, and so forth in verse 8. And he tells them they reject in verse 9 the commandment of God to keep their traditions. And he gives another example in verse 10. I think that's what you're getting at, Ken. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. Now, the, if I understand this correctly, and Ken, you could correct me, but korban is the idea of saying, uh, I've set aside this portion of my money as a gift to God. It's untouchable. It's, been, it's, it's either given or going to be given to God. It's untouchable. So what they would do is whatever amount of money they needed to take care of their parents with, they would say, oh, that's korban. That's going to be given to God. So they would neglect their parents. Now, that doesn't mean that they actually gave it to God. They just earmarked it, as it were. And he says, this tradition is simply something you've handed down, this idea of a korban gift, rather than doing what God said, which is honor your father and mother and take care of them. And so, in that sense, it's, this is, I don't know if this is a sin of omission or commission. Well, and, and I think they're committing sin by not taking care of their parents. 
but but they're they're omitting what they should be doing. Well, the last six ver- words of that verse impressed me, and many such things you do. In other words, yes. he's saying this you're you're, you're doing a lot of things like this too. Yes, other things. Ken, what do you, what's your point on that? Uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. They they uh, make an excuse for not taking care of their parents. Well, today we just say, well, that's the government's job, and I can't be burdened with my parents, you know, a bunch of old people, and. And I can't do it so that we either just shuffle them off to a nursing home when we're perfectly capable of taking care of them, or we just say that's the government's job and let it go, go on about our life, take our vacation. I had a, I had a pastor once, right after I was out of high school, or soon after I was out of high school, he suggested I move out of home, move away from home. It's been difficult for her to make it on her own, huh? Yeah. So my mother and father were divorced. And, uh... Well, that's kind of like my dad. And, you know, I had the, I watched, this is personal, but I watched my parents both take care of their parents until they passed away in their home. And um, so years later, it became my turn to do my part to take care of my wife's parents in our home and take care of my father in my home and my mother passed away while they, my dad was there taking care of her but but to take care of my father until he died in in my home it costs money cost time and and i think most importantly it costs emotional pain and involvement it costs emotional involvement which is uh not not always easy to do that but now, i'm very fortunate because my parents and my wife's parents were all lovely to get along with but I know that many of you don't have that same joy that I did, that they were Christians and they were, they were trying to do their best to get along with everybody in, their, in, their, in being aged. But at my father's funeral, and I wish I could remember the person who said this to me, someone came up to me and said that you are a very blessed man because you had, the, you had the privilege of fulfilling one of the Ten Commandments, honoring your father and your mother. And God gave you the privilege of being able to carry that out until the last bit is done. And boy, you know, of all the things people said to me, I think that helped them helped me the most. Because there's only so much you can do, and when it's over, it's over, and there's not anything else that you can do. And it helped me to lay that aside then at that point in time and realize, well, it wasn't always easy or pleasant, but it was worth it. And so in the in, what I learned there, Ken, is in the commandments of God, if we keep them, there is a blessing in the commandments, not a curse. The curse comes when we don't obey uh, God. Well, anyway, that's my personal take on that. When I read those verses in Mark, I think of that, how much they were missing because they were trying to avoid doing what God said to do. You want to add anything to that? Now, now you said Matthew 23. I can almost quote this one to you. 23, 23, yes. You hypocrites, you pay, what do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, that's that's a good... Uh, reference for the sins of omission, isn't it? I didn't think of that one. That's a good reference for that. 
here they were doing some things that they wanted to do, paying tithe of the small little herbs, the mint, anise, and cumin are small little leaves and seeds of herbs, but they were leaving undone or omitting the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith. Well, it's also an example, I think, Mike, of doing the easy things and not doing more difficult things. Well, yeah, the minute doesn't come and require something, but not, not as much as learning how to have justice and mercy, mercy and faith, and, does Right. It? Not, not even close. Because mercy, justice, and faith may take a lot of emotion out of you in, in more than one way. Uh, just picking leaves off of a tree is relatively easy to do. Yeah, you have to sacrifice. If you're covetous, it may not be. <laughs> right. <laughs> but still... Uh, it's uh, it's a different thing, and, and the thing about the the omission, the problem that you run into, to me, is like mercy or faith. When do you decide I'm doing okay with that or bad enough? You know, if you have a sensitive conscience, you may not ever be able to be at rest. And I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think He wants you to constantly be troubled and anguished over what you're doing that's good and right, the best that you can today. Are you going to grow and you're going to learn tomorrow? Yes, pray for that. Pray for growth and, and knowledge and pray for opportunities to do good and try to be at peace when you, when you know that you're trying to keep God's word and obey and, and lo love him. Pray to him every day, constantly lean on his guidance and everything, and then have confidence that God will show you what's lacking rather than to spend your life in grief and guilt and turmoil. It, it's, it's, it, it keeps going back, Mike, I said earlier that uh, we don't know how all the judgment and the advocacy is going to play out in the judgment, how exactly how Jesus acting as our advocate is going to discuss with God, I think, the idea. But here's one that I, I keep coming back to in James 2 and verse 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I have always, I have always said that I believe God is telling us that he is going to deal with us in a large way the way we have dealt with others. Now, what's, what, what I just did, though, Gary, and, and what you said is exa exactly correct, I just laid another guilt trip on those with an overactive conscience because now they're guilty for not understanding the sins of omission properly. <laughs> it, <laughs> well, it doesn't we, ever stop. They're, now they're guilty for or of thinking poorly of the sins of omission. What am I going to do about that? And so don't be guilty about that. Just try to just think about it, learn, and, and move forward in doing what God needs you to do. That's right. But but basically, uh, you know, we, we haven't been given a crank and grind set of conditions of which the judgment's going to occur. Uh, God's word is not that specific or precise in the way that we would like it to be often, but it does tell us in many ways things that we in some ways don't want to know I'm afraid we we don't want to understand that God is going to deal with us the way we deal with others it's it's not very comforting in some in some people I think right, right. Uh, but but basically I think that's that's what we see uh, now I, I also have to comment I don't think that we have really answered the question about what does the Catholic Church teach on this and I'm I'm not so sure that well, I like the way we've approached it. I think we've gone to the scripture to see what scripture says about it, and that's really all that matters. But we have not really answered the question about what the Catholic Church teaches about this. And and I'm not so 
keen on actually knowing what the Catholic well, Church I'll teaches about. I'll find out in a second here because I've got it right at my fingertips. I just haven't taken the time while we've been talking to. Uh, but but it, what's, it important, what's important, I think, for our listeners to understand, it's important what the Scripture says about sins of omission and sins of commission. It's not that important what the Catholic Church says about sins of omission and commission. Uh, we really need to to look at scripture and what God is trying to give us in terms of revelation. Uh, revelation is important to us and he's given us the scripture for that because the revelation is that we're going to be judged by the words that he spoke, not, not by, not by what the Catholic church teaches or what by the Pope says is true or what some cardinal or priest says is true. It's simply going to be what's in the scripture. That's just, I can't get away from that fact. We, we've got to look. It doesn't matter whether you're a Methodist, whether you're a Presbyterian, whether you're a Baptist, whether you're a Catholic, uh, whether you're a, a Mormon, or whether you're, you know, even even a Muslim. It doesn't matter what those those teachings are from a secular standpoint. It matters what God said in the Scripture. And I'm talking about basically the Judeo-Christian scripture, right. the Old and New Testaments. Because God makes the claim in the Old and New Testaments that this is his word. And, and that's the problem we run into is where people come along and they add things to that or take away from that in some way. And whenever they add, they take away. When they take away, they add. I mean, it's, those two things become the same thing. But a Catholic uh, source, I think a pretty high, reliable source, will say, among many other things, says this. Sins of omission are against either the law of our creation or the law of the two precepts of charity, which, of course, you have to, I guess that's love, your, love God and love your bro- brother, or against the law of liberty. If you leave undone the good or the duties to which we are bound by these obligations, we commit sins of omission. So it's leaving undone com- something about the command, like to love your brother so, or love, your, love God. I've already shown how sins that are venial lead to sins that are mortal, so now I show how sins of omission, in addition to being sins in themselves, also lead on to sins of commission. They are beaten. They are the beaten pathway which leads to sins of commission. So leaving out something that you ought to do, he says, will lead you to do what is wrong. And I, I can't argue with what I'm reading in a very broad sense there too much. Now, a sin of omission or the leaving of duty undone may indeed arise from any one of the seven capital sins, the Bible doesn't list seven capital sins. This is his creation of that. List, uh, lists, there are lists of sins, but there are more than seven. And then it is also a sin of commission. The Bible doesn't make a difference. But they, the Bible does not make a distinction between mortal sin and venial sin. The Catholic Church does, but the Bible doesn't. Sin is a sin. Some have different consequences than others. And some have lead to different places, but they're sins. A son may omit his duty to his father through anger. The sin of anger adds a sin of commission. So I might take examples from the others, but I will select only the one because it's the greatest of the sins of omission. I mean the sin of sloth. So we have sins of, the sin of sloth or idleness produces all kind of other sins, you see. We may understand at once that pride, anger, jealousy, the like may be mortal sins, but they all lead to sins of omission. It goes on. So this is a long article about that. Um, what you see in this, and this is maybe what Jerry is struggling with a little bit as a Catholic or a former Catholic. 
because the Catholic Church has added all of these categories of like seven capital sins and this mortal sin or that venial sin. None of those words are in the Bible. You could go and try to establish a concept from that, but once you begin to establish those concepts without using Bible words to do it, you soon lead yourself astray. One of our slogans here that I use in teaching and preaching is use Bible words for Bible things. Okay, We need to talk about things in Bible words because, because if we start using our own words consistently, like venial sin or mortal sin, we will soon be led astray by our own concepts. It's important to go back and get the concept from the Scripture as well as uh, some general teaching. And the Catholic Church, because they're filled with intellectuals from top to bottom, have been for centuries, are good at making up these concepts and, and then having them all laid out, you see. And people then begin, and what they do, like the Jews did, then the people have to accept and repeat the tradition, the Catholic list of things, rather than what the Bible says about it. So that's how tradition, damn it, takes. That's what Jesus was saying here about their traditions, many other such things you do. Right. They get their own concepts, their own ideas about what it meant to be pure. One of the things they would talk about about being clean or pure is hand washing. And so rather than just talk about what the Bible said about being clean or pure, they had all these traditions about how you wash your hands and when you wash your hands. They begin to enforce them more than they do the actual command to be pure. And Jesus says, therefore, you leave God's command undone to keep your traditions. So to go very far in talking about sins of omission and commission, you have to realize if you go very far in that, you're already leaving the Bible text. The Bible has something to say about that, but it doesn't have a lot of tradition with it. You see. Well, let me ask, let me go back to 1 John 5 then. Let's, let's ask what... Uh, in verse 14, he says, if, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. How would we make the distinction here? What what is what is John really saying about a sin that leads to death and a sin that not leads to death? Uh, well, that's been that's, that's been, been debated for a long time. Right. I, I think some sins have the consequence of uh, being very difficult to repent of and uh, lead to death because they're not repented of and they're not ever corrected. And I think he's talking. I'm going to speak without having studied the passage recently, Gary. He's talking about the kind of person who is set on doing evil, who doesn't care about right or wrong or what God says. And we have plenty of those in our society. And that person is sinning unto death because his sins are leading to death. They're not sins simply of omission or ignorance. That's or willful. They're not mistakes. He that's willful rebellion. They're rebellion. Howard Stern intentionally inciting others to evil and doing evil themselves and they don't care about it they laugh at it this is the the man that you know god says he's get you can give him up there's not much you can do about him and he's sinning unto death but all sins can be forgiven if there's repentance well and and paul makes the comment about himself that he was the chiefest of sinners and he even committed um, basically 
put to death Christians. So yet Paul was able to turn from that. Of course, the Lord had to perform a miracle to show it. Right. Well, the other passage that people get confused, well, we are really wandering all over the territory, <laughs> is Matthew twelve thirty one about um, the sin uh, that people call the unpardonable sin. sin. Sorry, Ken, I think we ignored Ken. He hung up. I apologize. He may have had more to say. And here we are talking away here, Gary. I apologize to Ken for that. Um, but um, there is this the sin that of sin against the Holy Spirit. And uh, hang on, I think I typed in the wrong met, wrong reference here, trying to get to Matthew twelve thirty one uh, to take a look at it. I believe that's the right reference or close anyway. Yes, um, he says. Therefore, I say to you. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. What's that mean? Well, I don't think it means there's just one sin that you say, I hate the Holy Spirit, you're never gonna, you can't ever be saved again. He's talking about something broader and deeper than that. If a man said, what I think he's talking about a deep-seated attitude that's not going to change what what they were doing in many in the cases where this is mentioned a couple times in the testament they were attributing the miracles of jesus and his words to satan. satan once you begin to say as the pharisees did that whatever he says is coming from satan then there's no hope of you being saved here god is sending a miracle by the holy spirit and you say that's a work of satan at that point there's nothing if you believe that, that whatever miracles God presents are from Satan, there's no hope of you ever being saved because that's the way God's going to save you, to prove to you that this man, Jesus Christ, is his son. Now, a man could say a word against Jesus Christ and be saved because if he still believed the Holy Spirit could do miracles, he would believe then in the miracles of Christ. People did say things about Jesus. Then they turned and believed because they saw his miracles. Well, which even came through the Holy Spirit. Well, well they even, saw his resurrection. Yeah, even his they, brothers were in that even situation. His brothers eventually became to believe because they saw the resurrection. So they were, and that came by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they were willing to be turned. Now, this is this. I think is the idea here. It isn't that oh, you can say there's some sins that God will forgive, other sins God won't forgive. I think he's saying this sin is a different kind of sin. Because once you attribute all of God's words to being evil or from the devil, there's nothing else God can do to save you. And you know what? We have a lot of people in media, in intellectual circles, and everywhere else who fall within this category well, and of living in unpardonable circumstances because well, they refuse to believe the word of God. Well, I'd like to point out, Mike, that I agree that this is what he's meant by that, and it's the context of that scripture. I'd like to go back to uh, Matthew 12:25. Let's look at exactly, Jesus says exactly that. If you look at it in an attitude towards this, he says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He's pointing out to you the futility of actually taking that logical path. And that's, that's in Matthew uh, 12, 25. It's the context for Matthew 12, 31. And I believe that I, 
to me, Mike, that is the explanation for what we're talking about here. That he's saying that. That's the context. How then will his kingdom stand, stand against itself? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? He's basically going back and, and saying, okay, you know, just look at what you're doing. Right. They're, they're, they put themselves in a position of saying, well, they will never believe. Okay, so I was having this discussion in the city council chambers of one of the councilmen, councilwomen a few years ago about poultry, whether we should be able to keep, we've got three minutes left, so I'm going to make this story short, uh, about whether people should be able to keep poultry in the city of Port St. Lucie, like keep a few laying hens. And I was trying to tell her, this councilwoman at the time, they brought me in as an expert witness because I'm a judge and all that stuff, that, that uh, a lot of people keep chickens as pets, and they're very close to them, and they keep them like people keep dogs. So the woman looks at me, this councilwoman from St. St. Port St. Lucie, I've forgotten her name now, she may still be on the council, so I better be careful. She says, she leans over the table. She says, there's nothing that you can say to me to make me believe that people keep chickens as pets. That was her exact quote. I wrote it down. And I leaned back in my chair and I said, well, ma'am, I said, if that's the case, there isn't much point in us continuing this conversation. But I said, I can tell you that I know thousands of people who keep chickens as pets and give them names and treat them as well as they do their dogs. But if you can't ever be convinced of that, because there's nothing that I could say to convince you. There's no evidence you can present. Nothing I can present. Why are we talking? Well, that's the position people get themselves in. She was trying to shut me up. But people get themselves in this position with God. Nothing God could ever do could ever convince them that he exists or his son is real. Well, then that's a sin unto death, Right? There's nothing that can be done. Well, he's pointing out in Matthew 20, 12, 25 through 30, basically that same attitude in the scribes of heresies. And he's pointing out basically the error of their logic and their approach. And then he says, and, and very carefully in verse 31, watch this word. He says, therefore, I say to you, what does the therefore do, Mike? It connects you with the preceding verses yeah. and the preceding logic. So it's it's... I think it's a good point in the study of the Bible to understand what he's actually saying, and then we have to pay attention to that. And we're out of we're time. We're out of time. Got to stop. But Gary, the uh, te- John, the texture says um, they will be pets until you get hungry enough to uh, to eat them. And, and I just says, well, that's one of the advantages of eating the chickens as pets, well, as opposed and, to dogs. And, anyway, <laughs> and, and and dogs in Vietnam because well, I, I was true. told they did the same thing with them. Okay, too. we got to close. Thanks for listening today. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to invite you to take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com, and join us at twenty one ninety six Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. And may God bless you until next week.